crown jewels housed in Westminster Abbey radiate the glory of the British throne. But as one generation hands over to another, so too do the memories and crimes of their history. What coronation are they talking about in the 21st century? You know, they are the very same people who dismantled the same system which we had in Africa. We had our kings, we had our queens, we had our whole system going on properly. Some are opposed to the continuity of the monarchy because one, they believe that most of their funds and the resources are going into some of these activities or funding the lifestyles or the existence of this monarchy. And some, there are those that strongly believe that the monarchy should be abolished. No, Zimbabweans should should not celebrate the monarchy because the monarchy has not been good to Zimbabwe. The monarchy is the reason why um, um, we lost our independence and we were colonized. So for the countries that feel that spending money to attend the, uh, the coronation of the king is a waste of taxpayers' money, you don't go. You send a nice card. Welcome to this week's African Now show, coming to you ahead of the coronation of King Charles III. As hundreds of millions of people around the globe watch the pageantry and celebrations, here in Africa, Charles's ascension to the throne provides a moment of pause and reflection. We are in South Africa, just outside a small town called Batuli, which is just one of 100 sites of British concentration camps that were established at the beginning of the 1900s. Many people don't know that it was in fact the British who introduced the idea of concentration camps and who killed a quarter of this country's population in just three years. So please tell me a little bit about this camp. This camp was the late last camp to being established of all concentration camps for whites. There were 46 camps for whites in South Africa and 64 for blacks. The camps were established because the Women and children supply the Boers with food and rations, and they want to keep them from doing that. So they bring them to camps. I grew up with my grandmother, who was one of the inmates here as a young daughter of 16. But she had a sister who died, and the name was here? Yes. Her name was Simpkin. It is Simpkin on this and she was a believed, and they were fought on the farm Roderport in Smithfield Street. Her sister was younger than she, and she starved. And she wrote a letter to her father, which was in a prison in Bloomfield, and said, Papi, please come to Fatuli camp and bring me something to eat. The day before he came to the camp as a teacher, she died. The tent caught fire one night and there was nobody to help. And my great-grandmother tried to extinguish the uh, flames with her hands. And her hands were burned and she died with disabled hands. And it was also told that people in their memoirs wrote about that incident to say that English-speaking Boer woman, of course their language, home language was English because my great-grandfather was English, that English-speaking Boer woman ain't burned down. Trudy, for, for you it's difficult because it's your personal history. It's not just a chapter in, in history. How do you feel about the British today? 
I have no bad feelings about them. I never realized or see that she was better. Only thing that she said that we never must speak English. And um, I think she forget and forgive. So Trudy, what can you explain to me where we are? This was the original or the second campsite after they moved from there in this hollow place. They lived here for eight months. All the people, all 4,880 of them live in tents there in that hollow place. There was no trees like now, it was only the hollow earth. And when it snowed, and when it, there was rain, all the tents were flooded and everything in the tents were wet. The English give them rations twice a week, 228 or 230 grams of meat, meat of cattle and sheep which already died because there was no grazing, and a cup full of maize or sand, and a little bit coffee and salt. This place in the hollow, it was not supposed to be here, it was supposed to be there in the open, next to the road, but the superintendent said he was afraid that the boers will find out where's the camp and come and visit. So he put him in this hollow place so that the boers can't see them. Can you believe that? <laughs> Do you think that the concentration camp system helped the British win the war? Yes, definitely, because that was the one factor which killed the farmers, the fighters, to see the suffering of the women and children, and they decided that instead of that more of them died, give over. And Trudy, when you speak, a lot of what you say sounds similar to the concentration camps that the Nazis did in World War Two. Do you think there's a connection? I have no scientific um, evidence for that, but I definitely think they learned from the British. What did they learn? How to kill people in the concentration camps, or how to make them suffer. Among the ranks of the Boers were hundreds of Russian fighters who volunteered to travel thousands of kilometers to an inhospitable region to defend the right for freedom. Like the Boers, they hated the British imperialist policies and many died for the cause. Freddie Peters is the grandson of one of the Boers interned in a camp. Why did Russia, in your opinion, choose the side of the Afrikaners in the Anglo-Boer War? I, th I think that uh, stems from uh, the uh, Crimean War in 18. 50, uh, the, in the early 1850s, after, uh, where, where they had uh, to f uh, fight against the British, and the British also had allies uh, supporting them, and the Russians lost at least 500,000, I think, uh, uh, men during that the Crimean War. And generally in Europe, uh, because of the expansion of the British Empire, there was uh, the feeling that uh, this thing is going too far. So how did, how did people in Russia know about the Second Anglo-Boer War? How did they even have the idea to come to South Africa? Most, mostly through, through the newspapers, 
Novoye Fremya, I think, was uh, one of the news, uh, Russian newspapers. And were they volunteers or was there a request from the Boer side for them to come? They, they were volunteers. Uh, no no uh, military personnel in the Transvaal Republic were paid as soldiers, like the British soldiers. The British soldiers were paid by, by the British government. Altogether there were about 450,000 British troops up against about 60,000 uh, Boers in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And do we know figures? From that 60,000, how many would have been Russian? Uh, from the 60,000, it's, it's not possible for me to give exact figures, but a couple of hundred, say four or five hundred uh, Russian volunteers actually came uh, to South Africa, but that were mostly people that had the means of traveling because they, they had to come on their own cost. They come, came here uh, paying for their fares themselves. Then they go to commando uh, supporting themselves. You know, the government wasn't contributing. It was, it was uh, volun volunteers <laughs> fighting on the side of the Transvaal Republic. But what they did is they sent their good wishes. They sent uh, the famous uh, gift that they sent to General Cronier is known as the Bratina. It is still in the museum, uh, Kruger House Museum in Pretoria, and it contained the signature of 70,000 Russian people who s supported the, the Boers and who sent them well, uh, good wishes. 70,000 signatures was put into this Bratina and sent to uh, the Transvaal Republic. Freddie, how important was the assistance uh, that the, the Russian fighters gave? Apart from uh, being uh, fighters who took part in the Anglo-Boer War, they were also supporting the, the governments of the Free State and Transvaal Republics with, uh, with, hospital, uh, with hospital services, with Red Cross services. Uh, they were actually a joint unit between the Russians and the Netherlands, a uh, joint uh, hospital unit that, that they sent to South Africa. And of those men who came from Russia, do we have any sense of how many died, how many went back to Russia? Yeah, a number of, of them, them died. Uh, uh, I, I know about the, the officers, uh, Russian officers that, that died during the Anglo-Boer War. Uh, one of the very famous uh, uh, Russian officers is Captain Liu Bokov, Bokrovsky, who uh, died with two other uh, officers uh, near Utrecht in uh, KwaZulu-Natal on the 25th of uh, December on Christmas Day 1900. And uh, they were actually buried there and there's a monument in Utrecht. And the memory of the Russians who volunteered and fought in the Second Anglo-Boer War, is that still remembered and significant in South Africa today? It is really significant and it's, it's, it's interesting for me to note that the latest monument about the Anglo-Boer War is at the Russian Orthodox Church in Midrand. And, and it was opened on the 6th of October 2013. That's very recently. And uh, the Russian Embassy made a contribution. And every year on the 31st of May we go there, we, we do the wreath laying. It's also important for the congregation of the Russian Orthodox Church because 
that uh, congregation was established on the 31st of May 1968 in Johannesburg. So it's also a date that's important to them. During the last decades, the Soviet Union was much closer to the liberation movement. So the Soviet Union formed a relationship, for example, with the African National Congress in South Africa. Yeah. The Did the Afrikaner community, the Boer community, see that as a betrayal, or how is the feeling in the community to... Yeah, I, 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 I think, you know, we were also brought up uh, to say uh, the, the, the red uh, danger, and we, we, we fought in the Anglo, uh, Angola war and Afrikaners had, uh, you know, specific feelings against the Russians. And Afrikaners that did go to Russia realized that there's actually a lot of goodwill uh, among those people and we should have closer ties. We, 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 we don't know each other uh, well enough. We, we, uh, we drifted apart. And uh, I think that is something that we have to correct going forward. It's over a hundred years, and still the Russian contribution is honoured and remembered today. A far cry from the smashed headstones of some of the British soldiers who took part in the Anglo-Boer War, as Nolovuyon Kunge reports from Johannesburg. Well, I'm coming to you straight from Bramfontein Cemetery Park in Johannesburg, South Africa. This is a place where many founding figures of South Africa are laid to rest, including British, Canadian and Chinese war fighters. A lot of the consequences of the Anglo-Boer War led to this kind of situation. It does come across as very peaceful and well-respected, but when you look around, it does not give any of that. It is vandalized, it is not respected, and there is absolutely no way to call this a Commonwealth war grave. 77 World War II veterans are commemorated here. In addition to the war graves, more than 500 British casualties from the Anglo-Boer War are commemorated here. It might seem like a peaceful and respected place from where I'm standing, but this place is abandoned, not sought after, and very much neglected. It's also one of those cemeteries that citizens feel should not exist. Our next story features the great-grandson of a Boer who was one of five to escape British captivity and swim to freedom courtesy of Russia. Mr. Saitler, thank you so much for your time. We understand many times that the Anglo-Boer War seems to be a very insatiable topic. Why is this always the case? The Anglo-Boer War is, has become an insatiable topic and uh, very much above the noise currently because there are many people in South Africa that were affected by the Anglo-Boer War. When the British came to South Africa, their whole mission was to annex the land of the Boers. And so this topic has re-emerged because it's a, it's a sensitive topic to us South Africans. Your great-grandfather and you are the descendant of Lowe and George Statler. If you can just tell us the story, there is a remarkable story behind those two names. Just tell us more about that. It is a remarkable story and very shortly, my great-grandfather, Lowe Statler, or his, his Christian names were Lawrence Jakubus Statler, and I carry his name, Lawrence Statler, very proudly, were at Grey College in Bloemfontein at school. They were in their final years and the Anglo-Boer War uh, was official 
soon after they left school. My great-grandfather and his brother George decided to join the Boer commandos against the British tyranny and they joined the commandos in Bloemfontein. But unfortunately, being inexperienced as soldiers, because remember South Africa had no army. We were just farmers, tending the land, looking after each other, looking after ourselves. And these two brothers with many other youngsters joined the commandos to fight, uh, inexperienced. And they were captured at Tabanchu, just outside of Tabanchu in the Free State. And they were sent down to the concentration camp at Greenpoint, which is currently Greenpoint in Cape Town. The concentration camp was known as Sky View. They even named their concentration camps. At the concentration camp, the masters of the concentration camp and the British Empire decided there were too many people in that concentration camp. And they took 600 of these people and put them on a ship, the SS Catalonia, and sent them abroad to be incarcerated in another concentration camp in Ceylon, which is today Sri Lanka. Now, as they were sailing, and my grandfather, my great-grandfather's memoirs tell about the horrid conditions on the ship, they started to make plans to escape. <clears throat> when they arrived at Colombo Harbor, uh, Harbor, he noticed a steamship on the outskirts and it was flying a Russian flag. Him and his brother, George, and three other guys, Ernest Hausner, Pete Boerter, and Willy Stein, made plans to escape that night. And this was about the third night that they went to Colombo Harbor. They jumped overboard and swam in the sea three miles more or less. And the Russian ship, uh, which was anchored there, picked them up. The captain, or the first officer, was a Captain Vladimir Kisimov. And he immediately took them aboard and he gave them a hot bath, he gave them hot tea, and he gave them new clothes, and each one uh, got a cabin to sleep in. And he then sent the message to Russia. Uh, St. Petersburg at that point was their capital. And he said, we've got these five Boer people, and we have hidden them on the ship. The British did sh uh, search the ship, but the captain had hidden them away. And there's a whole story behind that. They then sailed with the ship through uh, the Black Sea all the way to Odessa, where after they stayed in the barracks at Odessa, then they traveled with a train through to St. Petersburg, and that took about seven days. And when they got to St. Petersburg, the Russian people were waiting for them, and they, they uh, welcomed them as heroes. And Tsar Nicholas II declared them the royal guests of the Tsar House of Russia. And honestly, hearing you say a lot of nice things and kind um, things about Russia makes me wonder what you think of Russia and South Africa's current resurging relations. I'd like to inform you that I am a signatory to the Russophile movement. I am the 42nd signatory to the foundation of the Russophile movement, which is contrary to the Russophobia, which is happening worldwide. There is a narrative that Russian people and Russia are bad. Why? Well, I can only think it's to serve someone else's purpose. 
I and my family have known the hearts of the Russian people since the Anglo-Boer War because we have seen nothing other than the good-hearted human nature come to the fore. And I've been to Russia and that's all I see there now. A lot of people tend to speak a lot of things and voice their opinions regarding the relationship between Russia and South Africa. But maybe you can tell us what you think um, Russia can offer South Africa besides the great and deep historical relations that they've had. Well, <clears throat> you've asked the question, I'm going to answer it honestly. Russia, in my opinion, is the last great, great bastion against this woke agenda of negatively influencing natural and normal human existence. I hope Russia plays that part. And I told them that. And at the highest level in government, in my meetings in Russia, I said, the one thing that you need to do is stand firm against this ridiculous, unnatural wave of woke, and there are many other words we could use there, which do not make sense. We now travel to Zimbabwe, where Britain's 40-year effort to either influence or oust former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe proved to be a monumental failure. It is a story that spanned six British prime ministers, nearly one billion British pounds, and every conceivable strategy. There are several mixed feelings about the coronation of King Charles, given the history of Britain's influence over Zimbabwe and its past colonial history. Zimbabwe is a country that has felt the effects and the burdens of sanctions imposed on it by Britain. But with the president of Zimbabwe attending the coronation, some people think that it's a great opportunity for Zimbabwe to strengthen its ties with Britain, whilst others believe that it's inappropriate for the UK to invite the president of Zimbabwe to celebrate its monarchy while Zimbabwe is still under sanctions. What coronation are they talking about in the 21st century? You know, they are the very same people who dismantled the same system which we had in Africa. We had our kings, we had our queens, we had our whole system going on properly. And they decided to have the Berlin Conference, they decided to partition Africa, they decided to bring democracy, which they use as a reason to impose sanctions today. They claim that they, there is no democracy in Zimbabwe. Yet they are planning to have a coronation. What coronation are they talking about? We're expecting them as the masters of democracy to be having elections to choose who will be their king in the United uh, Kingdom. No, Zimbabweans should not celebrate the monarchy because the monarchy has not been good to Zimbabwe. The monarchy is the reason why um, um, we lost our independence and we were colonized. The monarchy is why we still have uh, the body parts of our chiefs and kings still sitting in, in Britain and they haven't repatriated them, they haven't made an effort to repatriate and the monarchy has never paid reparations to the Zimbabwean people for the oppression and destruction of our country that they undertook. And I believe that they should pay reparations for colonialism and they should pay reparations for the illegitimate and illegal sanctions that they imposed on Zimbabwe for us taking back our land given the current state of relations between Zimbabwe and the United Kingdom. Some people feel that it is a sign that relations were improving. However, others were more cynical, feeling that the invitation was more about politics than anything else. 
Keith Baptist for RT News in Arare, Zimbabwe. We travel now further north to Zambia, which was one of the first countries to break free from the yoke of British imperialism. Like elsewhere in Africa, the reaction of the population to the coronation is negative. The symbols of the British colonial era still stands in Zambia today, like the high court you are seeing behind me, which was commissioned in 1957 by Queen Elizabeth. The Zambian judicial system follows the British judicial system and even the attire worn by Zambian uh, judges is the same as the Crown Court system. And now the Zambians are going to celebrate uh, the coronation of Prince Charles III with mixed emotions. In my view, I think if any African country is looking to benefit out of the money which is going to be spent on the coronation of King Charles, this country ought to go back and think again. There are no free lunches on this planet. The British government is spending money to honor the inauguration of the British king, and it ends there. As a, a, an African country or Commonwealth member state, you have to ask yourself, is this coronation something that I want to participate in? If you can't afford it, don't go there. But don't expect the British government to give you money which their taxpayers are putting into the coronation of their, their king. Uh, and I think this is the disease that Africa must move away from. Uh, they're holding the begging bowl and expecting somebody out there to fill that bowl for you. We have to take care of ourselves. So for the countries that feel that spending money to attend the, uh, the coronation of the king is a waste of taxpayers' money, you don't go. You send a nice card. In Britain too, the home of the Crown, there is a sizable part of the population who are against the monarchy. Analyst Chris Bishop tells us more. From what you're hearing and seeing, is there an anti-coronation movement in England? Well, I think there always has been somewhere. Um, I don't know whether it's any more pronounced. I think it's more people are just indifferent, really, to be quite frank with you. Here we are. There's uh, not many days to go now to the coronation of King Charles III. Um, you really wouldn't know that it was happening. You know, it's the signs are very, very scant that uh, there is a, a big royal occasion coming up. Well, one of the biggest ones, you could argue, for, um, you know, nearly 70 years. Just speaking about the coronation, we understand that there's planned protests um, on the king's coronation. How's that coming along? Well, no, I mean, I think that there will be um, always, especially these days. I mean, in this country, there's protesters against oil, there's protesters for the environment, there's protesters uh, for uh, the cost of living. There's a lot of protests. I'm sure there'll be people there. It'll be a worldwide TV event trying to make their point in front of millions around the world, I'm sure. Um, and uh, I, I just think that's that's a sign of the time, that um, reverence that uh, for the royal family that um, has been prevalent since the days of Queen Victoria, if you like. It's, um, it's slowly, slowly becoming a thing of the past, but I don't think it's just here in England, I think it's a worldwide thing. The support to the monarchy is slipping away. Is that, um, according to your opinion, really the case? Just to give you an idea, I mean, when um, Princess Diana and um, the current King Charles 
the third when they married in 1981. I remember it vividly. I mean, there was flags everywhere. There was bunting on the streets. People had street parties. The whole place shut down for the day. There were cricket matches. There were um, celebrations and everywhere. And everyone watched it on television. It was huge, you know. Um, but um, this time, as I say, you wouldn't really know that, um, that things were happening. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show and a sad chapter in Africa's history. Here in South Africa, memorials like this one dot the countryside as a reminder of the dangers of colonialism. The Anglo-Boer War is sometimes referred to as World War Zero. Next week, we look at another war, this time the Second World War, and the African contribution to the defeat of Nazi Germany alongside the Soviet army. Join us then as we celebrate Victory Day. From now, though, from me and the team, goodbye.